Good morning, Christ Church. We are in a sermon series where we've been looking at key remembrances in Scripture. And as we look at these remembrances, the ways we're, different ways we're called to remember, how that in that process we become who we are. There's this identity formation uh, that happens as we focus on these remembrances. So we've looked at such things like, um, remember you are dust. Remember you were a slave in Egypt. Last week we talked about, do this in remembrance of me. And as we've been going through this sermon series, I've just become aware that there's, there are different categories for things that we forget. There's like the trivial things that we forget and then the important things that we forget. And so the trivial things, they're the things like, where did I put my keys or my wallet? Or am I wearing the same clothes today that I wore yesterday? I think I hung them up. I don't remember. You know, they're, just, they're pretty trivial and mundane, and we just kind of forget them because it almost just passes through our mind. But then there's these important things that we just simply take for granted, and we forget they're there. So an example of what I mean by that is the other day I was driving down I-35, and um, all of a sudden, traffic stopped. That's so unusual, right? Like, it just... There's no, I got stuck in a traffic jam and I was kind of angry for a minute thinking like, what is going on? I'm stuck in traffic. I've got places to be. Look at the time. And it sort of just, it occurred to me, wait a minute, I'm in this vehicle that roughly looks like a rhinoceros and it's made of iron and metal and steel. And I can travel 70 miles down the road and, and, and like this internal combustion engine is like making flames happen in my I shouldn't really be that upset. This is actually kind of incredible. I've just forgotten that I'm in something really extraordinary and I'm taking it for granted. So those are these two different types of remembrances. We forget the trivial. Sometimes we forget the important, even though it's so foundational, just because we've become accustomed to it. And today we're looking at one of these remembrances that is so foundational, so critical, so base level to what it means to be a Christian what it is to follow Christ that we often unintentionally forget, we overlook, we take for granted. We're looking at this, uh, what, what we're looking at comes out of our gospel reading, John 14, 26, and Jesus' conversation at the Last Supper. Now what this is, uh, in this conversation, this is, um, you're, you're in Holy Week at this point, and Jesus on Monday, Thursday, you remember he's in that upper room. And he's just done this remarkable thing, washed his disciples' feet. And he said, what I've done for you, you do for others. And then he starts to have a a long conversation. It's just an extended conversation you get with Jesus on the last time he's with his disciples. He talks about a number of things. He talks about what is true love and this, this new covenant that he's making. And he then talks about this, the Holy Spirit. And there's like three chapters, 14, 15, and 16 of of the Gospel of John are centered around a conversation on the Holy Spirit. It's our most extended conversation on the Holy Spirit we have in Scripture. Jesus says this in chapter 14, verse 26. He says, but the advocate or the counselor or literally the paraclete, that word in Greek, paraclete, it means the one who comes alongside and speaks to you from an alongside position. Not the one who's speaking over the top, but the alongside speaker to you. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I have said to you. So what we're talking about today is not just things that we're called to remember, but how the Holy Spirit has some work in remembrance in our lives. And this is the thing that I'm saying is so foundational. It's at the absolute like bedrock bottom of what it is to follow Jesus, that you can't do it on your own. 
that God has to come and intervene in your life. And he does a work in you, causing you not just to remember the words of Jesus, but to give you the ability to even follow the way of Jesus. He reminds you of the words, but he also allows you to follow the way of Jesus. And so we're going to focus on two words today. They come right out of our Old Testament and New Testament reading. We're going to be going back and forth between Ezekiel and Romans. But if you're thinking of like, what's the outline for this sermon, let me give it to you this way. Just if you can remember these two words, presence and power, presence and power that the spirit, how he will remind us is first with his presence and then through his power. So you can open up your Bible to Ezekiel 36, or if you've got your handout, you want to turn to Ezekiel 36, because we're going to look through this passage for quite a while. How does the Spirit remind us of the words of Jesus? Well, first of all, His presence comes to us. It's this indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. To be reminded to live as Jesus lived, the Spirit of God's very presence must make His home in our hearts. So this reading comes out of Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Now, let me just set up what's going on here is um, Israel, they've been absolutely removed from their homeland. The temple's burned down, huge crisis of faith. Where is God in the middle of this? They're living as foreigners in another city. And um, if you've ever gone through a season where you're kind of asking the question, like, can one more bad thing happen to me? Like, can one, it just feels like in a week or a month or a year, like things just keep piling up. I'm looking around at my friends, looking around at my family, and things are just, we're underwater. We can't get back on top. That starts to capture a little bit of the tone of how Israel is feeling right now. Like, God, where are you? We are separated right now. I thought you're the covenant, I thought you're the God who called us into existence. Are you concerned at all about us right now? So this prophet Ezekiel begins preaching to them, and in the very first part of our reading today, did you hear the message, the promise? This is back in like verse 24, I think. The promise that he first says is, God will gather you from all the nations. He's not done with you. He will gather you from all the nations to bring you to himself. And then, not only will he gather you back, but then he makes this promise to them. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And do you hear the, like, the baptism imagery going on right there? I will wash you. I will clean you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove your heart from stone and give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart. A heart that's able to receive the love of God. A heart that's able to share the love of God. with You'll have a tender heart, not a hardened heart anymore. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws, which is absolutely crucial for Israel at this point because the reason they're in exile is that they couldn't keep the laws of God. They couldn't follow them. So having the spirit somehow, this is a powerful promise. And we're gonna keep this slide up for a while and I just wanna, I wanna talk through this, uh, this prophetic promise from the Old Testament, talking about the presence, how the presence of God comes to us. And I noticed two observations uh, from this uh, scripture. First observation is that the natural state of all humanity is with a hardened heart. The natural state of all humanity is with a hardened heart. All humanity, even the religious Israelites, born with a hardened heart, hardness towards others, hardness towards yourself, perhaps 
you've felt this before, this like heavy self-criticism towards yourself. And other people say, I don't see that in you, but you just, this hardness even towards yourself. Hardness towards God, not wanting to worship, not wanting to obey. You've got a, a mind, a hard mind. What we tend to do is we overestimate our needs. Our minds tend to overestimate what we'll need, and we end up taking at the expense of others, hurting others as a result of that. We have hard, hardness in our heart, emotions, emotions that over-respond, right? Like if you've ever just felt like anger kind of coming out of you, and you're thinking, what did I do that for? You get this misappropriation of emotions, this hardness of emotions. You get these fears in your heart, fears that kind of silently, uh, only to you, speak and Get caught, make you cause to worry. And so you end up doing things that you simply don't want to do that end up hurting yourself and hurting others. You have desires, a hard heart, desires for taking more than beyond what is reasonable. Taking more food, taking more wine, taking sex not in the way that God intended sex to be had. Just this desire for more that is part of this hard heart. Theologians call what I'm describing right now original sin. And you've probably heard this term before, original sin. Let me just boil it down, though, into, as essence, what we're talking about. Original sin just means that to be born now into this world is to be born with a bentness away from God. Rather than being born as one of the creator's creation, able to grow and to flourish towards him, you're born bent away from him. That all your inclinations, all your imagination, apart from God, the trajectory of them never aims towards heaven. The trajectory will always aim away from heaven. And if given enough time, will become hellish themselves. You will become hellish yourself, even if not intending to do that. That's the bentness of our heart, the bentness of our nature. We're all born this way. While saying that, we are also are still created by God. Even though born with this bent nature... We're still created. We were made in the image of God. And so how do these two go together? Um, one analogy I've heard before, and I think this is maybe the best way to think about this, is imagine the Mona Lisa, this great work of art, renowned throughout the world. Perhaps some of you have seen it before. There, there's that smirk on her face. It's just at the edge of a smile. You're wondering what she's thinking. You know this is a beautiful work of art. And then someone comes in with like a giant Sharpie marker and just erases, like just draws black lines all over it, crosses out her face. I mean, just completely mars the, the image. You would go and you would say, this is still a beautiful work of art, but it has been marred. It has been destroyed. It isn't totally lost. Maybe we can re, you know, refix it. So it's, it's not lost some of its beauty of the, this priceless artwork, but it has certainly been marred. And that is the same with you and me, with every human born. You are made in the image of God, which means you have the capacity to receive love, the capacity to give love. You have capacity for relationships in a God-honoring way. But you have been marred, born into this world, born bent, born with Sharpie all over this beautiful work of art. <clears throat> this happens to every single human and this means that the natural ordering of our society will also have a bentness towards it, that we'll never see true justice, we'll never see perfect goodness happening in our society because this bentness works at every single level, individually and then by extension to a whole society. And this leads to one observation I've made over the years is that some Christians have a tendency to get so very angry at our culture, 
almost angry, expecting that they could do different. But if you take original sin quite seriously, you would recognize the way things are in society, they can get a little bit better, a little bit worse, but we're not going to see vast improvement in our society. That if we are angry about what is being taught in public schools or how politicians might be leading us astray, we can go into the public and we can make reasonable arguments, but this expectation that we're going to bring anger to try and win people to our side, I just don't think it's realistic if the very bentness of our souls is away from God, and that characterizes all of society. By the way, we are called to the public sphere. That's one of the callings of a Christian. We're not called to retreat. We are called to engage in in public, but I would just say taking this truth to be the truth that it is, you engage in compassion and mercy with those who are still living with bent hearts. All right, so this is observation one, that all humans are born with a naturally hard heart. Observation two, only the presence of God can change the human heart. Only the presence of God can actually change the human heart. How does the Spirit, this is what we're talking about, how does the Spirit remind you of the words of Jesus? How does he remind you of the ways of Jesus? He does so by coming to make his home with you. He comes by coming into your very heart, into your very self, and living there. Go back to the Mona Lisa analogy, and we talk about every human is marred, but the human can be cleaned. And this is what the Spirit does. It's like the Spirit comes in with ether and alcohols and cleaning agents and solvents and begins erasing the effects of sin, leaving just the beautiful work of art behind. And the process of your life is to continue to submit to this cleansing process so that you will one day perfectly reflect the image of God. You will be the piece of artwork that God has intended for you. That is called, that's the, the goal of sanctification, is that you would one day be so holy that even the presence of sin no longer remains attached to you in any kind of way. How does that happen? Look at verse 27. It happens when I put my spirit in you, my presence. The presence of God has to come into your life in order to make that cleansing possible. The presence of the spirit coming in, this is the precipitating action that leads to a whole life of holiness. You cannot be holy on your own. You cannot follow God on your own. The Spirit becomes in your life, comes into your life, and begins to make you holy. And I'm describing a moment called regeneration. Regeneration is this moment where the Spirit comes in for the first time. It's a moment so deep, so real, so powerful. You have the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, stepping down, condescending to live in your human soul, to live with you and in you. And as We try to describe what is happening. You'll hear people say things like, there's a warmth that came over me that I couldn't explain. I felt at peace towards people I'd never felt at peace with before. I just wanted to sit and worship God for hours. And what you're noticing is that language starts to fail. And when the Spirit of God comes into your life so powerfully, you you lose words. How do I describe what is happening right now? It is happening but I lose words for it. That's why some of the best teachers on this have been the mystics in the church. They're saying there is just something happening between God and me that I'm trying to grab onto the best language I can use, but even the language is falling apart. And all I can tell you is that God has come. He has entered my life, and everything is different. You know, there can be a danger growing up in the church 
And um, this was even in my own life, growing up, going and attending church times, this danger is that you've been baptized in the church, you go to every Sunday, you, you come to worship, you've gone through confirmation, you listen to all the sermons and all that kind of stuff, and you presume that you have had an experience with God. You presume because you know about God, because you show up in the right places, you presume you've got a right relationship with God. There's actually a danger in that. That you've never had this moment of this new birth reality, never received the presence, the very presence of the Spirit of God. He desires to come. I went to a, um, a Methodist seminary, Asbury Seminary. Some of you all have known about Asbury recently. It's been in the news. If you've heard some of the things that are going up on up there, this kind of revival has broken out among college students. It's really quite beautiful. I went to the seminary. It was across the street from the college. And um, it was really, John Wesley was like, he, uh, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, an Anglican priest, founder of Methodism, he was kind of like the mascot for the whole school. And if you didn't know, he was, um, he was a, a shorter gentleman, never grew taller than about five foot one or five foot two, never weighed more than about 100 pounds. So they had a life-size statue of him on campus. And every, um, every graduation, what you would do is you'd, you'd go, and yeah, I'm a little bit taller, so I would, you'd stand next to him, and you put your cap and gown around him, and take a picture with John Wesley and put it on social media page. Um, but his story has always gripped me because he experienced this danger I'm describing. Let me tell you a little bit about his life. John Wesley grew up in a ministry home. His father is a priest. His mom, Susanna, is an inc- was an incredible woman, taught all of her children uh, Latin and Greek, 19 kids, by the way. <laughs> yep. That's a lot of babies. A lot of babies right there running around. Um, John went to Oxford, and as a student in the 18th century, he founded a campus ministry, just gathered people together who would read the Bible and pray with him. And, um, and when he graduated, he took holy orders. He was ordained as a priest. He became a missionary in the American colony of Georgia and was reaching out to um, folks who had been imprisoned. He was reaching out to indigenous people. Um, really, really smart man, read the church father's polyglot, and yet he consistently felt like his life was just going through the motions with God. Just felt like he was showing up at church. Sometimes he was preaching at church and just going through the motions and never had this aliveness to his faith, knew all the doctrine, could quote to church fathers, could organize people to get together. Their group prayed at 5 a.m. every morning, but didn't have this aliveness with God. So in early 1738, he's at an all-time low. His mission in Georgia has been a terrible failure. No converts. He had a failed, um, uh, not marriage, what are they called, Um, proposal happen over there. So he's he's hurting relationally, goes back to England, and, um, and one of his friends invites him to an evening gathering where they're going to read um, the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Sounds like a great evening, right? Like... John, I know you're having a hard time. Would you like to come and hear the preface to a commentary written 200 years ago read to you? Very begrudgingly, he accepts. He goes to a street called Aldersgate. And as he's there and someone's reading about things that Martin Luther has written, this preface to this commentary, he said something began happening to him. Something powerful began happening to him as he heard about God's love, God's free gift of love, how God justifies, makes right sinners in the world. So he writes in his uh, journal that about a quarter before nine, 
Something happened. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given to me. He had taken away my sins, even mine, saved me from the law of sin and death. And you see, it's not the abstract. It's not just like God, Jesus hung on the cross to save the sins of the world. He saved my sins, the sins of an arrogant, prideful prick like John Wesley. He saved me, right? He had this sense God loved him. More than anything in his life, God's love defined him. Not love abstract, but the love of God poured into his heart. That's what Romans 5 says, that God's love has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, and his heart caught the love that night. That night, the greatest identity about John Wesley was that the creator loves me. Me. And he lived into that. What is Wesley describing? He's describing the presence of the Holy Spirit coming into a person's life. Faith, we hear the message of the gospel, and we want to believe it, but we are not capable on our own of what happens next. God is the one who must descend, who must come down, who must make home in your heart. He is the one who must come in and enter for this change to take place. Has your heart been strangely warmed? Has the stone, the hard part, been made new? That's our first point as we look in this promise of Ezekiel. Every human is born with a a stoned heart, and only the presence of the Spirit can make it a heart of flesh, a tender heart. Look how this scripture ends at the end of verse 27, because this leads us to our second word, power. It says, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, and I will move you to be careful to keep my laws. Meaning power, power always follows presence. The power to follow the way of Jesus always follows the presence of the Spirit in me. How do you know the Spirit has come to dwell in you? Well, one question you might ask is, do you have the power of God? Do you have in your life a deeper, the more that you've walked in this way of receiving the Spirit, do you have deeper desires that align with God's desires? Do you find yourself desiring the things that God desires, wanting to want the things that God wants? Do you find that self, do you find that in yourself? Do you see in yourself a victory over sin? And not like a day by day, am I doing better today than I did yesterday, but over the span of a decade, are you finding, you know what, I did used to struggle with that thing, and it's not even a temptation anymore. God's done some, he's done something remarkable in me. There's a power that I didn't have before to overcome things in my life that I couldn't on my own, that he has made home with me. Paul's writing about this in our passage from Romans 8. You can turn to Romans 8 now, and I want to look at one section from it. Romans 8, verses 5 through 9. The whole chapter of Romans 8, by the way, is like life in the spirit. What does it look like for real? But this passage right here, It says, those who live according to the flesh, that's that old heart, stony heart that we just have been talking about, they have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance or in step with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And do you remember what Jesus said in the gospel? My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I give you my Spirit so that you can have my peace. Those who are in the realm, the domain, who are under the power of sin, the old heart, cannot please God. And that might actually sound like a, almost like a mean thing to say. What do you mean you can't please God? 
But this is just the honest assessment of where we are in the world. Born into a world that is broken. You were born adrift at sea. The Titanic has sunk and you're in a lifeboat drifting out at sea. You need rescue. You cannot please God if you're in the realm of flesh. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, presence flows into the power of God. His presence comes and one of the effects is you will experience his power, his capacity, his ability to fight against sin of renewed mind, renewed heart, renewed affections, renewed desires. How does this work? How do we think about this working? One way is, um, I, I might think about it like this. I, my son, I have two sons, and my middle son, Charlie, some of you have seen him before. He looks like he's my mini-me. Like he looks, if you see him, if you were to shrink me down um, about two feet, take away the beard, add a little hair, like you've got Charlie right there running around. And we have a similar temperament, like just a lot of things. There's a, a family resemblance going on between us, right? And um, at our house, we've got a pull-up bar. And he'll see me, I'll hop up on the pull-up bar and I'll do some pull-ups. And he's like, well, like father, like son, I want to do some pull-ups. So Charlie will hop up there, I'll pick him up, hang him on the bar, and he'll start to do a pull-up and he can get to about here. And I'll put my hands on his back and on his stomach, and I'll lift him up the rest of the way. And he'll drop back down, and he'll start doing another one, and I put my hands on his back, and I lift him up just a little bit higher. He can't do it on his own, but I'm lifting him up. I'm giving him some of my power. I'm lifting him to do what he wants to do. He wants to be with his dad, wants to do something with his dad, but he's not able to do the things that his dad's able to do. And do you see the analogy here for us? You are made in your father's image, your heavenly father's image. And to do the things he wants you to do, to follow, to live like Jesus, you can't do them on your own. So he lifts you. He gives you some of his power. He makes you capable to begin to follow him. See, the core of Christianity, and this is the thing that I was saying that sometimes we forget things because they're trivial. Sometimes we forget things because they're so foundational, we just overlook them. This is the foundation of all of Christianity. It's what separates it from every other religion in the world, even the secular religions in the world. So when you think about other religions, there's always a huge list of laws. Do all the laws. Be really good and the perfect person, and you too will get the blessed life. This happens in our secular religion too. What I mean by our secular religion is there are laws and codes in our society. They're unspoken, they're unwritten, but you know if you go against them, you're kicked out of the group. You know, we have a word for it today. It's called canceled. You're canceled if you say something you're not supposed to say. That's not new. That's always happened. Humans will always kick other humans out of the group. They have, if you're not following our code of contact, but here's the essential difference of Christianity. Christianity will say, here is the list of rules. Here is the way of following God, and you can't. So I put my spirit in you so that you can I will do something in you that you can't do for yourself so that you become capable, powerful, have agency to live the way I designed you to live. I'll erase the stain of sin over you. Back to John Wesley again. One of his main goals was emphasizing that people follow scripture and then tradition and then reason, but also experience. He said, all, if all you do is have scripture, tradition, and reason, but you don't have the lived encounter with the Holy Spirit, 
He said, you're no better off than the demons. Even the demons believe that there's one God and they shudder. But have you softened your heart? Have you said, God, come to me, a sinner. Remake me. Come in, your presence, your power. He wrote this. He said, my fear is that there would be a kind of spiritually dead orthodoxy. Spiritually dead, but orthodox. All the right beliefs demonstrates none of the living power and vitality of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All the form of Christianity, none of the power. Let me just um, close here by offering some practical wisdom. What does this mean for us? All right, so we're, I, what I'm saying is you rely on the Spirit to bring to mind and to bring your life into conformity with God's. That's, that's His work to do. And if that's the case, then the most important thing you can do is put yourself in positions regularly, I would say daily, to receive his spirit. You cannot force God to give his spirit more to you, but here's the good news. He loves to give his spirit, and he loves to give his spirit to anyone who asks. So you put yourself in the places where he has promised to reveal himself. One of the most obvious ones is scripture. Sometimes we read scripture trying to figure out, like, I need to get all the facts out of the Bible right now. And it's true. The Bible is factual. It, is, it has truth in it. It is ultimate truth. It's the standard by which we judge everything that we do. But also, it is the arena of meeting God. It's like a channel where God's presence comes through scripture to meet you. You know, you might also spend time in prayer, just sitting before God and not just talking at God, but being willing to be quiet and to listen and say, God, would you, here's like the difficult thing in my life right now. The, here's the thing I've got going on. Like I've got these parents or I've got this roommate or I've got these friends and here's the, the real place where we're at and it's really difficult, God. And would you come into my life? Would you remake my heart even right now so that I can offer forgiveness, so that I can walk into reconciliation, so I can do the hard thing that you're calling me to do? We're about halfway through Lent right now. We've got only a few weeks left. Today is the fourth Sunday in Lent. And, um, and maybe for the rest of Lent, this is just your focus. I want to daily practice receiving the Spirit. I want to turn my car, my commute, into time with the Lord. I want to delete anything in my life, you know, Netflix or who, whatever it is that's like captures my attention, and I, I want to refocus that time on just sitting before the Lord. One practice that, that has been profound for me that I'll, maybe some of you will pass along to this, I call it candle prayers. Candle prayers, and what I mean by that is I, open, I read the scriptures, I start with, uh, with morning prayer, and I'm reading through our, our scriptures, and usually in the gospel, I encounter some deep truth about God. God's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the one who provides, something like that. And I'll just kind of hold that thought as the prayer for the day. And so I'll light the candle, and, um, and I'll just sit before it, holding this one truth about God that I received from the scriptures. God, you are the creator. Just focusing on the candle. Now, what happens if you're like me in prayer is as soon as you begin to get quiet and begin praying, it's just like the laundry list of activities starts flowing through your mind, right? The people I have to meet with, the things I have to do, all that is being depended on by me. And so in this moment... I just tell, I tell the Lord, I'm like, Lord, would all these distractions just be like leaves on top of a river and I'll just let them float by? But would you do something? Would you kind of make a, like a beaver dam at the end so that when I'm done praying, I can go back and I can collect those leaves? But right now, Lord, I'm just gonna let them go. I'll acknowledge they happen and they float on by. And anytime I find myself getting distracted, there's something about just looking at the candle reminds me, 
the one thing I'm doing right now is holding this prayer, God is creator. And I found personally in my own life that there's just a way of the spirit ministering to my heart, warming my heart, strangely coming to me, not every single day, not every single moment, but here's a reality. You have to make time to receive the spirit in your heart. You have to make space to receive the spirit into your heart. It is the Holy Spirit's work to remind you of everything Jesus has said. It is the Holy Spirit's work to make it possible for you to live the way of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand.